Good morning and welcome to Hannah's Hangout. I'm your host, Margaret, and today we'll be discussing animated TV shows. This will be an episode where I recommend a few shows that I've seen on both Netflix and Sky and discuss why I feel they should be recommended. There are a couple on the list that I haven't seen yet, but I do feel they've been talked about and positively reviewed enough for me to feel pretty solid in recommending them. But just to let you know, I have had to split this episode into two. So although I said I'd be reviewing shows on both platforms, I talked so much that this is now a two-parter. The episode today will be solely about animated shows on Netflix, and then I shall be releasing another episode for those that are on Sky. It turns out there is way more shows than I thought, and I've also seen more than I thought, so I'd like the time to discuss them properly without having to rush. If you're not usually into animation or you've wanted to get into it but you're unsure about what to watch, this is more of an episode for you guys than anybody who does watch animation on a regular basis. But if you do watch animation regularly and just want to see if there's anything else to watch, this may also be helpful. It depends what you've seen. The reason I've done this is because I'll always argue the case for animation and animated shows because they often take you into a separate world that isn't exactly reality, but it is believable. You can't always do that with live action media. It often feels too real and the visuals have to be done convincingly in order for you to suspend your disbelief. But with animation, it's already suspended and you're ready to engage in a world that is much more heightened and exaggerated, but ultimately has this realistic message that reminds us that there is a lot of truth in these shows, even if they're not realistic at the same time. As I mentioned at the end of my last episode, I feel animation is sometimes seen as a lesser form of television for whatever reason. Maybe that's because animation used to be geared more at children and adult shows only bring us series like Futurama or Family Guy. Uh, If you like those shows, obviously that's up to you, but if you don't, it probably feels there's not much out there for you or you think everything else outside of these shows are somehow anime. (laughs) Well, that's obviously not the case. And as technology grows, we are getting more animated shows that are beginning to be broadened to family and adult audiences alike. Also, I just want to say that I do love anime, but I also recognise that if you're new to animation, there are a lot of stereotypes and biases applied to anime, which they can be impact, but we don't have the time right now. There are a couple of anime shows on the list, but I feel first that people need to work their way to something that is anime. Not because I feel it's a lesser medium. But because if you're new to animated shows, or you're unsure, I feel some anime is perhaps beyond your comfort zone, just because of these biases that people have built, or, I don't know, because the world that anime brings isn't always something we're used to in Western society. It is definitely not something to be avoided or misunderstood, but we will start off, you know, with something small, and then hopefully, when you realise that animation isn't something to be avoided, you'll be more willing and open to enjoying anime as it is. So, going off that, my reasoning then is that there's enough misunderstandings and stereotypes applied to Western animation, let alone animation from other countries. So, one step at a time. (laughs) Let's ease you in, you know, rather than smash you through all the barriers at once. As you can see, uh, this episode today will be about going through a list of shows recommended to anybody out there who is looking to broaden their horizons 
try something different and step into the world of animation and animated shows. Yeah, so I have structured this in some way. There is sense to what I've done, I promise. So as I mentioned earlier, I have cut the content in two. All we'll be talking about today are the shows currently on Netflix. Everything else will be mentioned in the next episode. There aren't that many on Sky, to be honest. I thought there would be more, but... Even so, I added a few at the end that aren't available on either platform, but I still think are worth mentioning, so... I still have way more recommendations than I originally thought. For each show that I talk about, I'll try and give a quick summary of what it is before giving a few opinions on how I found the show. Now, most of them will be personal opinions, but there may be a few facts thrown in there, so don't think that everything I'm saying is a fact and you must go with it. Try them out for yourself and see. It is down to personal preference at the end of the day, and I know different people hold different opinions on these shows, so of course it's up to you to decide if it interests you or not. Also, a quick reminder that this isn't a child-friendly podcast. I won't be swearing in this episode, and I will be covering shows suitable for children, but I do also talk about some shows that are solely for adults. I shouldn't be saying anything necessarily offensive that kids can't hear it, but if you want to be safe, just make sure that they can't hear before continuing with this episode. I can't promise anything. I do mention some heavier topics later for the adult shows, so it is worth bearing in mind. Okay, so moving on to the main part, I'm going to begin with the series that are more aimed towards younger audiences, but can still be watched and enjoyed by adults. And from there, move on to the ones that are perhaps in between, more for a general family audience, and then move on to a couple that are strictly for adults. I want to make it clear, as some people may not fully get what I mean when I say these two terms, but when I say something is for children, I mean it's pretty much only for kids. Only children will enjoy the show, basically. So you would say, I don't know, Dr. McStuffins or Ben and Holly's Little Kingdom. Is strictly for children. There's not really anything in there that has much nuance or complexity and can be enjoyed much by adults. Not enough for you to watch an entire series anyway. Whereas for me, when I say family audiences, I mean it can be enjoyed by anyone of any age. So when you watch Disney or DreamWorks or Laker, for example, they are family films because they are suitable for children, but also hold enough nuance and complexity to be enjoyed by adults. Those are the distinctions I make. So when I say that something is for the family, don't think that necessarily means it's strictly a kid's show. I mean it is suited for all ages. With that in mind, let's move on to the shows, and those that I've said are more aimed for younger audiences, but can still be enjoyed by adults. For this category, I wrote down three shows that I think are suitable. These are The Dragon Prince, Hilda, and Carmen Sandiego. The Dragon Prince is actually written by the same writer as Atla, as I call it, or rather Avatar The Last Airbender, which we will be coming to later, don't worry about that. But I'd personally argue it's not as well written. The two main writers of the show are Aaron Eas and Justin Richmond, for anyone who was wondering. But I'll, uh, I'll quickly summarise the show before I get to any of that, so let's get down to it. The Dragon Prince is a fantasy series set in the continent of Exadia. The opening briefly explains there was a war between magical creatures and humans on this continent, 
which ultimately ends in the Dragon King being killed and the Egg of the Dragon Prince being stolen. We assume that the Dragon Prince has been killed too, nobody seems to know what happened to the Egg. And from this, the story opens on King Caro, who discovers that assassins have been sent to kill him in retribution for the death of the Dragon King. Without giving too much away, his two sons Callum and Ezran discover information about the Egg that means they must travel to the magical side of the continent to speak with the Dragon Queen in order to bring peace to the land. Currently, there are three seasons, which are all available on Netflix, and the episodes are 25 minutes long. It was really easy to get through, because not only are the episodes fairly short, but there are not many episodes in one season. There's averagely nine per season. So, yeah, you can get through them pretty quick if you wanted to. You may also think this sounds very typical of a fantasy series, not just in plot but in terms of the characters. Usually these types of shows are orientated around white male characters, but I want to assure you that the Dragon Prince does a fairly good job of including a mixture of people with different backgrounds. King Harrow and Ezra themselves are black. There are some Eastern Asian characters as well. There is a good split of male to female characters and a good split of ethnicities. On top of that, we have characters like General Amaya, who is deaf and communicates using American Sign Language, but also leads our army and is one of the more valuable assets in fighting the war and keeping peace. There are also queer characters. So in terms of representation, it is pretty solid. I can't really complain, to be honest with you. I want to discuss the concerns that I had for this show first, as well as why I rated it as more of a children's show than an adult's. Uh, mainly so we can end on the positives really but the reason for why I rated it for younger audiences is the reason behind my main criticism. It is quite an immature show. If you watch the first couple of episodes it can actually be a little cringy. As an adult I did ask myself why I'm watching it to be honest with you. I was interested in the plot and it did in some ways pay off, but if you're an adult going into this, you have to be prepared for the immaturity of the characters. Some characters are young, so that makes sense, but some of the older characters act quite strangely in my opinion. I would say this is actually due to weak characterisation from the writers, and this is mostly seen in Viren's character who is the royal advisor. There is a lot of flip-flopping between people's personalities and it feels almost like you're getting whiplash at some points. I don't feel there is much complexity to the characters and some of the decisions for how they behave is just downright strange to me. Uh, so this is why I would rate it more for children. I don't think these inconsistencies will really bother younger audiences that much but for anyone older it might become a bit annoying and I did find some of it a little annoying to be honest with you. But if you can allow yourself to look over it and continue, by all means do so. I don't want to get too much into why they're inconsistent, as that would contain spoilers, but you'll be able to see for yourself what I mean. You can see it immediately in the first episode, like straight away, and you do feel a bit self-conscious as an adult watching a show that has some immature characters. I mean, that it's not necessarily a bad thing to show immaturity when you do have young characters, but I would argue there's a difference between that and being annoying. It was written by the same guy who was the head writer of Atler, and I feel Atler does make that distinction much better, and you don't really get that as a problem. 
When I say that, I mean young characters have immature parts to their personality, as is expected of their age, but they're not annoying and inconsistent as we see in The Dragon Prince, so I guess I'm quite surprised that this was a problem, as Iaz in particular wrote a similar show before, and it wasn't an issue in terms of inconsistent writing, so yeah, I don't know what went wrong there. But to end on a positive note, I would still argue that it's worth watching, and here's why. The lore, the world building, and the magic that we see on this show is actually incredibly fascinating, and is what really hooks you to the story. I know that adults who have watched it have said the same, and it's what ultimately keeps the viewers engaged, despite the issues with, you know, flimsy characterisation. But the plot of Marilisa's in this mystical world can be really interesting, and you definitely do want to know more as time goes on. There is a battle at the end of season three, and it is incredibly reminiscent of Lord of the Rings. So if you like any media similar to that, so, you know, obviously Lord of the Rings, Earthsea, or even Narnia, you are going to like the lore in the Dragon Prince. It is very strong, and knows how to keep the viewer interested if you do stick with it. But unfortunately, I feel that does leave us really at a 50-50 balance at best, because on the one hand, it makes the show very solid, because the plot and the world building is very very interesting but the characterization really lets it down so yeah i don't know i would still add it because it's worth it for the law if you want to try it out with your kids first and see how you feel that may be a good idea if you have any kids who love magic fantasy action adventure they would most likely love this show if you don't have any kids and want to try it anyway then definitely go for it but just bear in mind what I said about some of the immaturity of the characters and be prepared to have to sit and watch it. It does get better as time goes on, more towards the third season, but the inconsistencies are still there, if not the immaturity. If you're okay with that and can get past it, you will really start to see the promise of the show and why the lore can keep you excited to watch more. Okay, next. The second show I've picked for more younger audiences is Hilda. Hilda is based on a graphic novel and you can tell. The animation is just stunning. But before I gush about it, let's give a quick summary as to what it's about. Hilda is about a young girl who has to move from her home in the wilderness to the city Trollberg, where she has to make friends with human beings rather than mysterious creatures. But if you think that puts an end to her magical adventures, you would most definitely be wrong. It was developed by the same guy who wrote the comics, Luke Pearson, but there are a host of other writers who wrote the episodes. There are 13 episodes overall, which last around 25 minutes, uh, and there is a second series currently in development. It is meant to be released this year, but because of everything that's going on, I'm not sure if it will be. Also, from what I can see, it's won a host of Annie Awards, an Emmy Award, and two BAFTAs. So they have done quite well as a show. Now, firstly, the reason I put this as more of a younger audience show is because the show does place children as their main characters, and it does reflect their world as a result. Although there are some good moments that lend itself to older audiences, there is a bit of a simplicity to its storylines that are perhaps more geared to kids than to adults, but if you're an adult, don't let that stop you. Just because it is perhaps more geared towards younger audiences, here are some perfect reasons as to why you'd want to watch it as an adult. It is very much an escapist show, and as I mentioned before, that is why I'm covering animated shows in general. They can have a very heartfelt message at its core, 
but still bring a loveliness to it that sometimes you can only get in animation. Hilda represents this perfectly. It's a bit strange, a bit quirky, and it's definitely very silly, but it doesn't make it immature. The episodes have simple messages, and there can be a quietness to the adventures that unfold on screen. They're not grand adventures, necessarily, but it's lovely to watch, and there is enough mystery and originality in this magical world to keep you interested. It's certainly a very pure show, and you can also see this in the artwork and the score. The characters, the stories, and the animation leaves the show feeling very whimsical, charming, and wistful, but there's also a good ongoing message about growing up and about confronting those experiences in life that are complex and can often elicit strong emotional responses. That's what makes it good for kids and adults alike. Anyone can take something from this show. As Luke Pearson works on the show, and he is the one who wrote the comic, perhaps that's why it perfectly captures the charming quality of the comic and successfully transfers it from page to screen. It may also be Pearson who storyboards the show, I'm not entirely sure, but moving on to the animation itself, it is spectacular. I'm enjoying the different animation styles that emerge with technology and with the expanding awareness of what animation can bring to stories, and this is a perfect example. We see different artistic styles in films, such as Captain Underpants and Into the Spider-Verse. Now, whether you like these styles or not, it's important that we see these different art styles represented in stories, and we see another example here in Hilda, and a strong argument for its case. The actual animation, not just the art style, but the colours, the lighting, it is just gorgeous. And we see an example of that from the get-go with its opening sequence. It is so colourful and exciting, but also there's such a calming quality to it, and it almost has a late summer slash autumn feel to it with the colour palettes. So not only is it calming watch in regards to the storyline, but also due to the animation itself and its score. There is nothing about this that isn't perfectly done. The only downside to Hilda that I instantly noticed is that Grimes wrote the theme song for it. For those of you who don't know, Grimes is a musician who married Elon Musk. She has engaged in a wide range of problematic behaviour. Let's not bother getting into it here, but it's pretty much agreed that she is a terrible person. So yeah, take that as you will. But I don't want that to ruin your enjoyment of Hilda because she doesn't have any other involvement with the show and didn't work on the score itself. So there is no need to be put off the show just because of that. As a whole, Hilda is a strong show and is worth watching if you want to unwind a little and just plug into something that is calming and comforting but also interesting. To be honest with you, the first couple of episodes are a little so. I must admit, I felt there wasn't a big point to them, but I think they are the right kind of setup to introduce it to Hilda, her mom, the world in which she grew up, and why it's upsetting to her when they are then forced to move into the city. So I think that's the main reason they're there, but if you're not sure about the first couple of episodes, try and get through them and at least watch some more before you make up your mind, because I did find later episodes to be more interesting. There is a slight part, but nothing major. I would say it's just more that the world unravels as time goes on and grows more and more. There is some relevance of early episodes to later ones, but again, nothing major. Maybe season two will be different, but at this moment in time, this isn't a show that is primarily plot-driven, so don't expect too much of a build-up as the series goes on. The only thing I would say is that it doesn't feel like a binge-worthy show. It's nice to watch, 
But even though the episodes are around 20 minutes long, they feel much longer when you're watching them, and it's not the type of show that you necessarily want to watch in one go. I would recommend watching one or two at a time, three at a push, but that is a personal choice at the end of the day. I personally didn't feel I was able to watch more than that in one go, but if you feel you want to, then obviously go ahead. It's not that big a deal. But I did feel that, although I didn't get bored of them, it did feel like each episode lasted quite a while, so I didn't really want to keep watching them continually. Lastly, Hilda is British-Canadian, as in this show, not the character. So it is a joint production. The voice cast is primarily British, and there is a little bit of British humour in there that I think some people will appreciate. There are a couple of moments that I did think were funny, so I think that's a nice plus for those who perhaps want to watch something that isn't strictly American. It is nice for someone who's English to watch something with British actors because you do become used to voice actors who are mainly American, or if you watch anime, Japanese, so it's nice to hear that reflected in the voice cast. Carmen Sandiego, on the other hand, is American, but it hosts a range of different nationalities in the show. But before we get to that, let's summarise what the show is. Carmen is an orphan who was found and brought up on an island that belongs to the organisation Vile. Whilst there, she learns the skills needed to be an extraordinary thief, but disagreeing with the philosophy of the organisation, she runs away, stealing a red hat and coat as she does. She then becomes a Robin Hood-esque figure who travels the globe, stealing artefacts from Vile and returning the items back to their rightful owners. There are currently two seasons. They're not that long, about 10 episodes per season, and the episode length is nearly 30 minutes. Gina Rodriguez voices Carmen, and despite some of her problematic moments, I think it was the right thing to do by the creators to choose a Latina woman for the role. There's also Finn Wolfhard and Rita Moreno among the cast, and it has won an Emmy and two Annie Awards considering it was only released last year. It has been nominated for other awards and is currently nominated for four Emmys, which is pretty impressive, like I said, for a show that is a year old, if that. So the show itself is based off of video games from the 80s called Where in the World is Carmen Sandiego? They were educational mystery games that mainly focused on geography, and this is actually the reason I've rated this for younger audiences. The education part of the show is what made me rate it lower, as well as some of the characterisation choices. I think it might be worth speaking about this now, to get the negatives out of the way. But as it is an educational show, it was difficult to fully immerse yourself into the story, because as much as it has its positives, which I will get to, it would suddenly halt the show to info dump on you, which as an adult wasn't always entertaining. It could actually be quite jarring, especially at the beginning when you're not used to it. It was done in a much more slick way than other shows, so I will give it that. It is a spy series at the end of the day, and it's often done while they're passing information between Carmen and her hacker assistant player, as in his name is Player. And it did have context because Carmen grew up marooned on an island, basically, and it would make sense that she would want to discuss some of the countries and facts that she learned because she is travelling across the world, so the jump isn't really that painful. But as good as the show is, that minute or two where they take you out of the story to info dump facts with you does ruin the flow of the show for me personally. I think the facts are interesting, and as an adult you still get to learn these cool things about different countries, but if you're not really interested in geography, or you just want to tune out for a bit and not have to learn new things, 
you might not find it to be that helpful or necessary. Overall, I don't mind it too much, but it does remind you that this is ultimately an education show, so unfortunately I ended up rating it lower for this reason. For this, kids will definitely adore Common San Diego, regardless of those one or two minutes, because it's cool and sleek, and the information for them won't seem too much of a jump, you know, from the story to the two minutes worth of learning that we receive. But as an adult, you have to ask yourself whether you are willing to watch a show and get past that. It's definitely not as simple as Dora the Explorer or anything like that. It is nowhere near as simple as that. But even with its jumps in between, you definitely notice that you're being fed geography facts. Also, some of the characters have a similar issue to the Dragon Prince. They're not written inconsistently, The show does apply typical cartoon stereotypes to its characters and that can make it more appealing to a younger audience than for adults. But that doesn't make some of them not fun. I feel the villains of this show suffer from it the most. They are primarily one-dimensional, which is a shame because their concepts are actually really cool and they are a really fun presence on the show. But they don't have the multi-dimensional aspect to them that I've come to expect from some other series. This can be also said for Devonu, who is another prominent character on the show. So yeah, I would also rate this more for younger audiences just because they do subscribe to some of these cartoony cliches and they don't have as much complexity to the characterizations as some other shows do. But I also think it depends on what you want to see from these characters as to how entertained you'll be. It really is down to personal preference in that respect. Uh, either way though, here's some reasons why you might want to watch it regardless of some of the downsides. Carmen Sandiego was talked about a lot when it first came out, and I still see it talked about enough among those who enjoy animation. The animation style itself is simple but lovely, and it is very appealing to look at, and the fighting scenes are really well done in this style. They're very fluid, and that works to the show's advantage. But I suppose what really lends itself to being a good show is one, its diversity, and two, the fact that they managed to create a well-defined and intriguing plot amid all of the places that they're trying to visit. Because ultimately, again, it is an education show, so they're just trying to move around the globe. You can see, not just from the characters' design, but from the voice actors who are involved with the show, that this show is incredibly diverse, racially speaking, and even in terms of gender. How often do we see a Hispanic spy who is smart, capable and cool and is also the main protagonist and the title name of a series? Pretty much never. And even in Vile, who we see first, there is a mixture of Swedish, Indian, Egyptian, American and Japanese leaders, three of who are women. The police in the show are French, with the head of ACME, an organisation that these detectives work for, being a black woman. And we have various other characters of different races and from different countries as well. This really is an international show in that respect, and it pays homage to the fact that Carmen really is travelling the world and meeting new people. It would be so easy to revert to the usual American or British cliché that somehow everyone who Carmen meets is white and speaks English, somehow, but that is simply not the case here. Even some of the white characters aren't American, like I said. We have some French characters and even some Australian characters. If you're looking for something that takes its story and its characters seriously in terms of racial and gender representation, this really is the show for you. 
Also, the story does lend itself to some intrigue and mystery, not just because of the nature of Carmen's work, but because we don't know much about Carmen's background and where she comes from. There is some character development and an unravelling of her past which can catch the attention of adult viewers and raises the show above typical educational cartoons and into a well-structured animated series that can be viewed by people of any age. But I do want to say that that plot about Carmen and her background doesn't really kick in until series two. So if you want to get to that part, you do need to get your way through season one first. Another plus is that this show makes a really good statement in terms of who the actual villains are. Although Vile is multicultural, their crime is that they are one, capitalists, and two, they steal precious and historical artefacts from particular countries in order to make money. Which is also capitalism, but this is a very specific type of villainry that isn't usually typecast as villainry at all. We see in Indiana Jones that he is a hero because, for the sake of archaeology and historical preservation, he takes artefacts from countries all around the world, and we are meant to idolise him for it. It continues the conversation, one that was brought up in Black Panther, for example, that these artefacts belong to the country and its people, and the Western societies that took them as well as profit from them should give them back. And this is the main form of antagonism that we see in the show, and I actually love it. This is such a good message to send out to young children, especially those in Western societies who belong to the countries that are continuing to participate in this form of exploitation. It is also a very topical discussion right now, following the protests that are occurring in the US, as well as some other countries across the world, and also highlights the hypocrisy that has arisen in accusing the protesters of looting. But in terms of the show, to have a Hispanic woman be the one to return these artefacts that were stolen is an incredibly strong and poignant message, and I think is another strong reason as to why Carmen Sandiego is a pretty good show. It makes a powerful statement, and though it may not always be the most complex show ever written, it certainly makes a point and does it well. Therefore, if you do like more crime or spy-orientated shows, this may be the show for you. If you can get past a couple of minutes of info dumping and some of the silliness from the characters, you will genuinely start to see the worth of this series. I did feel the first season was a bit slow, to be honest with you, but it definitely started to pick up in the second season, so I felt there was something more to keep you interested. I was really intrigued to see where they were taking the story. Um, I was actually quite disappointed when the second season ended because it was actually starting to go somewhere. So yeah, the first season wasn't for me personally, but I think the plot really starts to come in during the second season and definitely caught my attention a lot more. It is promising and it does entertain me enough to be recommended. Also, if you do like geography and you do want to hear a load of facts about different countries, then you are in luck. This is everything you could possibly want. But one thing I have noticed similar to Hilda is that I don't feel it's necessarily a binge-worthy show. It's nice to watch steadily, but don't expect to want to watch a load in a row. At least that's how I felt, um, at least up until the last half of the second season. So if you want something to binge, bear in mind that this may not be the type of show that you're looking for. Right, moving on to animated shows that are more family friendly, we have She-Ra and the Princesses of Power. Now, I just call it She-Ra, and I know when you speak to adults and you mention the last half, they judge you a little bit. Nobody wants to hear another adult say they watch a show that's called The Princesses of Power, but please don't let that put you off. There are so many reasons to watch She-Ra, and now that it's ended, I can confidently back this show 100%. 
without forewarning that there will be a disappointing ending later. There is no disappointing ending. Trust me. Also, before anybody asks, yes, this is based off of the original series from the 80s. There are parts of that incorporated into the show, so if anybody did see any of the original She-Ra or He-Man, you might feel a familiarity with the show because of it. For a quick summary, we find ourselves on the planet Etheria. The planet is divided by two opposing sides, the Horde, led by Hordak, and the princesses, who were once in alliance but later fell apart due to the death of their leader. Most importantly, we meet Adora, who is an orphan, and has been raised and trained by the Horde to fight against the princesses. She has been granted a promotion to Force Captain by her mentor, Shadow Weaver, and as a result, she and her best friend Catra sneak out into the Whispering Woods to celebrate. There, she discovers an abandoned sword, which calls to her and asks her to accept her destiny. She later picks it up and completes her transformation into the legendary She-Ra, who is destined to bring balance to Etheria. There are five seasons overall, and they are all available to watch start to finish. They are averagely around 25 minutes per episode, and it does herald a very strong voice cast, some of which includes the incredible Sandra Oh, Miss Gina Davis, and Lorraine Toussaint. Unfortunately, Shira has not yet won any awards. But they have been nominated for an Emmy Award, the Annie Awards, the GLAD Awards, but I did also hear the other week that they've been nominated for an Emmy again, so fingers crossed. They do deserve it. Uh, but for any of you who are of an older age, or are men, or you're someone in general who doesn't like quote-unquote girly things, you may be thinking that this show isn't for you. Well, you would be wrong to make that assumption. There is so much I want to say about Shira, especially now that it's ended, but I only have so much space and time. So let's start with why anybody of any age, gender or sexuality should be watching this show and why I bumped it up from being a show for younger audiences to a family show that is just as relevant, if not more so, for adults as well as kids. Noelle Stevenson created She-Ra by taking the original series from the 80s and turning it into something relevant for today's audiences. I could rant forever about what makes reboots and remakes successful And a lot of shows and films have failed to incorporate any of these factors. You know, we see it in the new Star Wars trilogy. We see it in that reboot of Sailor Moon that nobody talks about. In the new reboot of the Powerpuff Girls and Scooby-Doo. And most famously in the Disney remake live action movies. There are very basic reasons as to why these are less successful. And most of it comes down to the writers believing that they can replace actual substance with special effects and technology. There is only so much you can be impressed with CGI or computer animation before people start looking at the actual plot and realising that it's lacking. Unfortunately, She-Ra came out around the time that all of these reboots did and got tired of the same brush before anybody had seen it, so it did take quite a while for people to even watch it before they admitted it was any good. But She-Ra does have substance and updates the show in so many ways that others have failed to do. Shira goes out of its way to bring a succinct story that expands on the lore of the original and brings more of an explanation as to how everything works, why the characters are the way that they are, and also how the conflict can be solved according to the rules of this world. The original follows the classic cartoon formula that resets itself after every episode, however the new Shira goes out of its way to have discussions that revolve around both healthy and unhealthy styles of parenting, as well as trauma, abuse, grief, 
Religious fanaticism, especially its attack against those who do not conform to traditional ways of living, and the struggle of maintaining friendship in the face of betrayal, hurt and conflict. This is what gives it substance, and this is what gives it the emotional depth and humanity that the classic animation missed. Ultimately, this is what makes it relevant to today's audiences. It's also what makes it a perfect story for people of all ages. Children can learn from this, but so can adults, and I know that some adults have seen some of these stories and really connected to them. Why? Not just because it brings up real-life issues that can be difficult to face, but also because of its diversity. Now, this is the pinnacle of Shira's success. The diverse world in which it belongs. We see people exist in this show that genuinely exist throughout our own world, but aren't always shown in our media. This cast is a wonderful collection of different ethnicities and body types. There are characters who are not neurotypical and arguably show traits of autism. There are characters who have mental health issues. But what really captured the audience's attention, and arguably there aren't really any shows like it, Shira belongs in a world where not only does none of this matter, but gender and sexual orientation doesn't matter either. We see characters swap between going on dates with men and women alike. We see non-binary characters where their gender is not commented on. We have three canon couples before the end season, one where they are both male, another where they are both female, and a male and female couple. These couples are also all married to each other. This is a world where race, gender and sexuality really is not a deciding factor for these characters. Instead, these characters are judged on their skill, their behaviour and they're willing to do what is right. A lot of people will argue this is unnecessary. Or this is liberal media at its finest. But at the end of the day, this is a sci-fi fantasy world that doesn't care for any of these differences and judges people based on their actions and their actual powers or skill. In a perfect world, that is how things should be and there should be nothing radical about this idea nor about presenting it on screen. By all means, if you dislike Shira for other reasons, uh, you know, e.g. you don't like some of the characters for whatever reason, or this type of adventure isn't something that catches your attention, or you just don't find the conflict to be that interesting or high stake, well, they would be valid criticisms because it is based on personal preference. But if you don't like nor want to watch Shira because it is a majority female cast, because there is a good mix of ethnicities represented, or because it is a world where nobody has pinpointed as straight, then I have nothing much to say to you that can be said here, or that would be inoffensive to you. There are perfectly valid reasons as to why you can't like this show, but if it's because of the diversity, then you don't deserve a show like Shira anyway. Is it perfect? No, not at all. I do want to disclaim that the show can be very silly, and some of it is aimed at younger audiences, such as Swiftwind, who is Shira's steed. I personally found Swiftwind quite annoying as a character. He was very much the Olaf of the show. And I feel that season one at least is definitely a little bit cliche and cheesy. And it did also have some moments that reflect the immaturity that I mentioned in The Dragon Prince. But does it also build on that and become a plot driven show that is based on genuinely good storytelling? Yes. I definitely think that Shira season 1 and 2 are great and they are a fun watch but season 3 to 5 is really where the solid story comes in. If you watch the first season of Shira and you think that's a bit cheesy, that's valid, but I would really urge you to continue up until at least season 3 and honestly you won't regret it. 
His positives by far outweigh the negatives, and if you won't watch it because of the diversity, you really are missing out on a wonderful story. Please give this a try, and if you do have children and think you want to try them out on the show, please get them to watch it, regardless of what gender your child is. Some people think it's a show for girls, but it's not. Grown men have watched this and loved it. Boys have watched it and loved it. My brother has seen it and absolutely loves it. This is an action-adventure story. This is a sci-fi fantasy story, and the gender, the race, or the sexuality of the characters shouldn't affect your decision to watch it. I think some of you may be surprised by how much you end up liking it if you stick with it. One last suggestion is that if you do watch She-Ra, please don't look anything up related to the show until you've finished. Averagely, you could watch a season of She-Ra in six hours, so you could easily watch a season a day and still have a break if you wanted to go hardcore. So if you're someone who can't help looking up spoilers, perhaps watch it quickly in one go. She-Ra is a show, now that it's ended, where you can't avoid spoilers. If you think, I want to look this up online, on YouTube, on Twitter, Tumblr or Instagram, you will get spoiled, even if you're looking for something specific in the earlier seasons. You can't look at this show online without seeing everything that has just happened in the final season, and if you think it doesn't matter, it does. Some of those spoilers really change your enjoyment of the show because a lot of the what-ifs are answered and it doesn't leave a lot of suspense or surprise if you do know some of the later twists. So, please, if you do watch She-Ra and you think, I want to look this up, please don't. Well, not until you're finished because it will be ruined. And if that tempts you more to look at spoilers, just watch it quickly and get it over and done with. That also goes for the theme tune. It is available on Spotify. If you do want to listen to it, please don't go ruining yourself by seeing spoilery tabs on the side of YouTube or something. So yeah, keep that in mind. Anyway, my next suggestion for family viewing is Green Eggs and Ham. You may think this sounds familiar. Is this based off of the Dr. Seuss book? Yeah, yes it is. Now you may have questions as to why this is not with the Dragon Prince or Hilda, but I just went with my instinct here. I can't fully explain why it's suitable for adults too, but I think it is. So here it is. To be honest with you, I knew of Green Eggs and Ham since it first came out. I knew that adults had watched it and loved it, but I had absolutely no interest in seeing it. I thought that's a kid's show, so why would I want to watch that? Because surely any show based on Seuss's work would ultimately be for young children, right? Well, no, not exactly. So I ended up watching this because I was trying to stop my brother from watching the same films over and over again. We were trying something a bit different, and I thought he'd like this because we do generally like the Dr. Seuss books, and we have seen all of the films based off of his work. So why not give this a try? It turns out that I enjoyed it way more than he did. I was really into it and I I really wanted to know how it ended. He just buggered off, so I ended up watching it on my own. But before I get carried away there, um, the summary for Green Eggs and Ham is that Guy, a failed inventor, accidentally swaps briefcases with Sam I Am while he's out trying to find a new job. He's decided he's going to have a job watching paint dry. That is not a joke, by the way. That is the actual job he's trying out for. Uh, but the briefcase that he accidentally picks up contains a rare chikaraffe. When Sam later finds Guy and they swap briefcases, he explains he's trying to return the animal to its mother as he's taken it from the zoo. 
However, there are a handful of people after the Chikaraf, including Matt Winkle and Gluntz, who are named bad guys, or one word, and a goat bounty hunter hired by a businessman called Snurs. Through a series of crazy events, Guy ends up on this journey with Sam, mostly by accident and against his will, and on the way they end up coming across E.B. and Michelle, a mother and daughter duo on their way to a business trip. There is only one season currently available, which is 13 episodes long, and the running time is 25 minutes, but to be honest, I felt like they went pretty fast. The first season was released in 2019, and there is another season to come, but for now, I'm not really sure when that will be. The show also has a surprising amount of famous people in its cast, and includes the likes of Michael Douglas, Adam Devine, Eddie Izzard, Diane Keaton, Jeffrey Wright, and Keegan-Michael Key. It's a very well-picked cast, and really does deliver in that department. You certainly can't fault the acting in the show. Also, I'm not going to lie, the theme tune is super catchy, and I really enjoy listening to it. But, as you can tell by the description, the show itself can be very silly and goofy. But honestly, I think some of it is suited perfectly for adults and kids alike. There's enough slapstick and silliness to be continually entertaining to kids, as is expected with Dr. Seuss. But there's also very serious messages and stories in there to make it have a surprising amount of nuance for adults. It's not something that's dark or complex, but it has a good balance of silliness and seriousness to drive home the message of the book that it's based upon. That trying new things and getting out of your comfort zone is highly important. Also, the creative world to which we are introduced, as is so common with Sue's stories, is incredibly fun, fresh and original. It's unlike any other world that we know on screen or in books, and the way that they navigate this world is bound to keep both adults and children interested, as well as the poignant question of will they be able to return the chick after its mother? Will they be caught by the bad guys, and why is this team's deal? Will Michelle ever allow her daughter E.B. to venture out on her own and learn to control her own fears and anxieties that are translated through her parental role? And most importantly, Will Guy ever step out of his comfort zone and accept his failures are a natural part of success? These are very general questions that may not seem that interesting nor important if you haven't seen the show, but when you watch it, you genuinely get caught up in his characters and their lives. It is easy to connect to Guy, who has tried and failed several times to achieve something great in his field, a field that was his childhood love and interest and one that he was considered gifted at. And it's just as easy to connect to Michelle, who has given up her own dream to parent E.B., and has to learn to let her go eventually. But even more so, it's easy to connect to E.B. and her frustrations in wanting to step out into the world, and being ready to, but being stopped by something outside of her control. So, for a usual Sue story, I feel that these characters were giving a surprising amount of depth and realism for anyone of any age to plug into. Not that other Sue's mediums don't do that, they do that quite well, but the characters themselves do have that depth and realism. It's what makes this show suitable for everyone and balances out those scenes that are much more silly. But although the show is silly, I would argue it isn't immature, and that's why this has been rated where it is. So yeah, try it out and give it a go. Green Eggs and Ham was much more enjoyable and interesting to watch than you would originally give it credit for. The last show in the family category is a staple of animation. If you ever get into animation and you want a show to watch, this one in particular will nearly always be recommended or mentioned. You can't get away without seeing a reference to this show. And that show is Avatar The Last Airbender. You may ask, is this show worth the hype? Yes, it is. Is it a perfect show? Of course not. 
but it is worth the praise and there are several reasons for that. So let's recap the show and what it is. The show starts with a summary of what has happened in the past to get to the beginning of the series. There are people in this world who can bend the elements, fire, water, earth and air, and to keep the balance there is an avatar who can bend all elements. Everyone lives in different kingdoms and tribes depending on the elements that they connect to, but one day the Fire Nation begins to attack the other nations so they can expand their rule across the continent. This was around 100 years before the story begins and at the time the Avatar disappeared and was never seen nor heard from again, so nobody was able to stop the Fire Kingdom from expanding their rule. A hundred years later, two siblings, Katara and Sokka, find and revive a boy within an iceberg who introduces himself as Aang. He is the last airbender, as the air nomads were all killed by the Fire Kingdom, so as Aang comes to realise he is the last airbender, and that a hundred years has passed since he was last conscious, we can then naturally assume that they go on an adventure to stop the Fire Kingdom's rule over the continent, and to train the Avatar and the other elements so he has the power to stop the kingdom itself and its ruler, Fire Lord Ozai. It is super hard to try and summarise Avatar in a very quick and concise way, but there it is. As I said earlier, Aaron Ears was not just a writer on this, but he was the head writer and he did later team up with Richmond to produce The Dragon Prince. However, the criticisms I have for The Dragon Prince aren't really present here, and if they are, they are minimal enough that it isn't an issue and doesn't really affect your viewing experience in any way. But also that may be because he wasn't the creator, despite being the head writer. The story itself was created and co-produced by Michael DiMartino and Brian Konitsko. So perhaps that's the reason why this story is a bit stronger? I don't know. I haven't really looked that much into it. There are three seasons overall, and each episode is around 20 minutes long. The series did originally air on Nickelodeon back in 2005. So it's been around for quite a while now, but it's been on Netflix for at least a few months and for anyone trying to get into animation, this is a really good and easy transition into that. It's also won various awards, most notably the Annie Awards, the Kids' Choice Awards, an Emmy and a Peabody Award. It has been nominated for others, but it says a lot that Atlet also continued to be nominated for awards for a couple of years after it finished airing. Now, Atla has to be mentioned because it really did change the game for not just animated shows, and not just for family-friendly shows either, but for television in general. It really has changed the game of how fantasy is written, and how conflict and redemption is written. It has been 15 years since it started airing, and for an industry that continually passes shows and films into the mainstream before they end up being passed into oblivion, only to be forgotten not long after, Atla has maintained its popularity, its message, and its relevance. Firstly, the universe itself is so well-crafted. It really is up there in terms of world-building and lore, and what's great about it is that it doesn't take its influence from Western or European myth and legend, as we have come to expect, but is a Western show that is based primarily in Asian culture. The biggest influence is Chinese mythology and legend, but there is a mixture of other Eastern Asian countries and cultures in there as well. And what's great about this is that it could have easily have been appropriated and ended up aging terribly as a result. But such care was taken and a lot of the designs, you know, for the world, the characters, the clothes and architecture, etc. was so well researched and thought of that this continues to be an inspiration and a lesson for future animators and storytellers. Aaron Ears revealed not that long ago that they had tried to make the inspiration either incredibly broad 
or specific to adhere to this. For example, originally the Fire Nation was based on Japanese influences and designs, but as the Fire Nation was mainly seen as a kingdom ruled by fascists, basically, they changed the influences so the message taken from that wasn't that Japanese people nor their culture was negative, and their designs were therefore broadened so their influences couldn't be pinpointed to a particular country. Now, you may think things like this are a given, or it wasn't necessary to point out, but so many stories and shows especially are so careless in these kinds of designs and appropriation, and this is an important distinction that has to be made. This kind of careful consideration for the culture in which they worked really came through, and brought us a world that is, yes, mainly created by Western writers and creators, but was also crafted into something respectful and interesting that pays homage to the cultures that inspired them. This show is also tightly written. Like some of the best shows out there, animated and live action, it came out to tell a story, did so, and left it there. If Atla had been dragged out, I think it certainly would have ruined the story eventually, but what we get is something that is compact, concise, and strong as a result. It built up in each series, not just for the end of that season, but for the end result itself. And in terms of bringing adult themes into shows that can be viewed by kids, this is a great example. It really brings up discussions around authoritarianism, genocide, imperialism, inequality, and what it takes to be a pacifist in the face of violent conflict, particularly when that force comes in the form of the state itself. Now, that does sound pretty heavy for a family show, but in all honesty, you don't even notice in Atla. It is a serious message, and it does hit home, but it doesn't make for uncomfortable viewing, nor does it feel heavily pressed onto the viewer. We see this message hit home through the eyes of children, and through the eyes of the everyday person whose lives have been moulded through these oppressive influences. And we can clearly see why all of the negative factors that I previously mentioned are to be condemned. This is why it's effectively done. By doing this, it not only allows for a show that is suitable for children, but for one that is complex and nuanced enough for adults. What we're seeing here is a show that doesn't insult the audience's intelligence, basically. Especially their emotional intelligence. Also, although this is a story about Aang, as he is the Avatar, there's one other person who holds almost equal weight in the show, and a character who is continually used as a pinnacle of redemption arcs. I don't want to ruin anything, but we do have to talk about it to some degree, if you ask any person who enjoys animation what a good example of a redemption arc is, how well and seamless you can make these stories, Atla and their main redemption arc is always mentioned. Always. I've never seen it not mentioned at this point. There is a specific character who this story is handed to, but again I don't want to spoil too much. Through this character, we get to see the impact that this war can have against those nearer the top of the social strata. We go through the effects of intergenerational trauma, abusive and toxic family settings, and why focusing on revenge is not the way forward. Again, this sounds very heavy for children, but it's not. It is really not. They can watch this show and take these lessons and experiences and internalise their own message without going through the heavy and often distressing scenes that we see in adult shows. As I mentioned earlier, animation really is a good and artistic form of escapism, and we can enjoy a show that gives us the complexity and nuance you would hope for in adult entertainment, but with the stunning visual effects and light-hearted nature of animation. This is why sometimes the best thing you can watch is animation. It's less likely to negatively affect your mood, even when focusing on heavy topics, 
but it can still be emotional and heartfelt, and not only does Atler embody this, but it is a show that has rarely been recreated since. Its plot, its world, its message, there has not really been any other show like this since. There have been some others that have tried with varying degrees of success, those being such shows as Steven Universe or She-Ra, and although they make a good effort, there is a reason Atler is still heavily talked about, referenced and recommended. It was a complete step in the right direction for television in general. Lastly, there are a host of amazing characters, both male and female, and if you think this sounds like a heavily male-orientated show, it is not. There are both male and female villains, side characters, as well as a group of warriors consisting only of women, and the Avatar themselves are not specifically male. Avatars can reincarnate as either male or female, there's even disabled avatars, and those who teach Angna elements are actually primarily women. Of course, one of the best examples of inclusive characters, which then gave way to General Amaya in The Dragon Prince, is Toph, who is from a wealthy family, but is also blind. On top of that, she's the world's greatest earthbender and even learns to bend metal, which we can assume she's the first to do that. So, what is great about Atla is a range of things. It's diversity and inclusion, it's captivating story, it's visual effects, and ultimately, it's incredibly important message of peace and equality. If this isn't enough to convince you to watch it, I don't know what will, but finish the first season and tell me that this isn't a good show, because I think you'll find that it is. So. There ends the shows that are family friendly. Next, I'll be covering some shows that are only suitable for adults to watch, and there'll only be two of these. The first that I'm covering is Bojack Horseman. Bojack Horseman is a show about an anthropomorphic horse named Bojack. He used to be a popular TV sitcom star back in the 90s, but nowadays he's struggling to maintain his career, let alone have a successful one, and struggles with alcoholism. His close circle pretty much comprises solely of his agent, Princess Carolyn, Todd, who sleeps on his couch and has done for years, and Mr Peanut Butter, who used to be a sitcom rival during the 90s. Mr Peanut Butter is currently dating a writer named Diane, and Bojack decides to work with her to write an autobiography, which hopefully will help him rise back to fame. This show completely takes you for a ride. It's not necessarily a crazy adventure, but it is more of a mental and emotional ride. Bojack Horseman was created by Raphael Barbotsberg, and as I tend to mention credit songs that I like, the end credits for this show is super catchy. But, back to the show itself, there are six seasons overall, and the running time for each episode is 25 minutes long. As for the cast, it is a very talented cast, and does have some famous names in there. Well, I say some, pretty much most people. Um, we have Will Arnett, Amy Sedaris, Alison Brie, Aaron Paul, and guest stars such as Stanley Tucci, Wendy Malik, Angela Bassett, Rami Malik, Stephanie Beatrice. So many names. We could go on and on, to be honest. There's just so many. Uh, there are a lot of well-known and talented voice actors on there too. It is a satirical take on Hollywood, so no surprise that there's so many well-known actors who appear on the show. As for awards, it has been nominated and won a hefty amount of awards. Too many to bother going through, so that should speak for itself. Bojack Horseman is a satire, but it's a successful one. It attempts to have multiple conversations about relevant socio-political events, particularly within Hollywood, and ultimately, it does address these quite well, and does hold its characters very much accountable for their own behaviour. 
Now, this is why I believe everyone should watch it, and it is a much harder take than a lot of other satires or those shows it claimed to be. Not to name blame, but Rick and Morty is a common example of one of these shows. And a problem with those type of satires is that viewers themselves don't seem to realise it's a satire, despite knowing that it is, and they end up idolising the male character that's supposed to be condemned and is actually a very toxic figure. But the thing about Bojack as a character is that not once is he shown as someone we should idolise. It very much exposes his life as the tragedy it is, but it also creates a discussion as to why he should do better and how he can start to turn his life around even after everything that he's done. This series does create a much more genuine and serious discussion regarding the title character, as well as some of the socio-political scenarios that it presents, especially compared to a lot of other series currently out there. And I think it is an important distinction to make, which is why I think it's important to watch this and see these discussions in action. Now, Bojack Horseman is rated as an adult show by Netflix, obviously not by me, and that's because there are a wide range of heart-hitting topics covered in this series, alcoholism being one of the main ones, intergenerational trauma and neglect, miscarriage and infertility, unhealthy relationships, general drug abuse, sexual abuse and even suicide. Now, people may think this sounds a bit too dark for me, but as I've mentioned before in this episode, the animation style does help to balance the dark stories with an almost silly animation style. This series is set in a world that has anthropomorphic animals living alongside humans, some of who are married to each other, and nothing is said about it at all. This is why, even with some emotionally distressing scenes, I would say some of these scenes are made less emotionally and mentally poignant only by the animation we see on screen. For example, it's easier to digest these stories when it's been delivered by a pink cat or a golden retriever. There's a lot of bright colours, visual gags and puns to take your attention away from the darker elements and does help to balance the atmosphere. However, that doesn't mean the message doesn't come across. It comes across very well. And if you make it to the last two seasons, if they're not hard hitters, I don't know what is. Uh, So if you do want something more mature, if you want something that takes this message seriously and really delivers a satire that it claims to be, and brings up some other important topics such as found family, overcoming neglect, overcoming mental health issues and addiction, even to admitting that you're asexual, this is a show that continues to deliver and really leaves nothing unsaid. It can be bleak, cynical and depressing, and without giving too much away, I wouldn't say it has a traditional happy ending. What matters is that these characters grow in ways that are healthy and realistic. For that to happen, a happy ending is never going to be achieved because it's just like real life. Working to become a better person or working to overcome our demons, whatever they may be, is a lifelong commitment, and we are forever changing and learning. Therefore, I think the show did end in a perfect way. It faces a corrupt and depressing nature of Hollywood, as well as the same nature that can exist in humans, but it also shows a promise that there is a solution, even if it is the hard way. And as Todd says, it's all about doing the hokey-cokey and turning it all around. Perhaps this doesn't sound like a happy show, and in many ways it's not, but it is a show that confronts the darker sides of life and explores them in quite a realistic way, and in a way that does point to a better future, if it cannot be brighter, and it creates a discussion around many issues adults face. If you want a show that is contemplative, funny, striking, ambitious, and most importantly self-aware, Bojack Horseman is truly the show that delivers.
The second show that I've picked for adults is The Midnight Gospel. This only came out recently. I think I must have watched it pretty much the same week that it came out, mainly because I was doing research for this episode and I thought I'd give it a try as it looked interesting. At first, I wasn't sure if I'd made the right choice, but the decision definitely paid off in the end. But anyway, without further ado, The Midnight Gospel is a hybrid between an animated show and a podcast. It's created by Pendleton Ward, who also created Adventure Time, and Duncan Trussell, who hosts the podcast The Duncan Trussell Family Hour. The premise revolves around a spacecaster, a podcaster basically, called Clancy, who uses a computer to send himself into different simulated universes. There he finds people to interview about various topics, such as meditation, drug use, anger management, etc. But usually the world in which he inhabits for this short time is always about to expire, and ends in some apocalyptic event. Because it's a simulation, he usually gets to escape before he is affected by it. It may sound a little magical and trippy, and that's because... it is. Duncan himself voices Clancy, the main character, and that's because each episode uses actual recordings from his podcast. But there are scripted scenes within the show as well, so it kind of switches between the two. Nearly all of the characters were guests on his podcast, most of which are professionals. So, for example, some of the guests who speak with him in the episodes are addiction specialists, psychologists, political activists, convicted criminals, and one guest was an advocate for the reform of the funeral industry. Now, the reason I highly recommend this show is because it brings incredibly thoughtful discussions to the screen, but with a very heavy touch of comedy and wackiness, which is reinforced by the animation style. If anyone has seen Adventure Time, the animation style was very basic, but could also be silly and downright absurd. But it was also highly imaginative, and this translates into the Midnight Gospel. However, I definitely argue this show is much more heavy-handed in its absurdity. Before I finish on the positives, I am going to share my experience watching it. I did look up a couple of reviews to see how others found it, and I discovered that quite a few people did agree with me on this point that I'm about to make. So that makes me feel better. As the dialogue for the most part is pre-recorded and is obviously recorded in podcast style, it does feel a little disconnected at times from what's happening on screen. That's because what's happening on screen is usually insane. And I mean insane. For example, in the first episode, they're discussing the positives and negatives of drug use. But what's happening on screen is so bizarre that you can hardly concentrate on what they're saying. The character that they've chosen to use as the interviewee is the president of a country that is being ravaged by zombies, and we see a very gory and unbelievable escape from these zombies as they're discussing drugs. Now, it is very entertaining, and the absurdity of it is what adds to the comedy, but it then makes it very difficult to concentrate on what's being said. So it's a bit like you either have to pay attention to the audio or to the visual, but you can't do both. This does sort itself out more by the third episode, but the first two can be a lot to digest. It was quite difficult for me personally to fully understand what was going on. Also, the swap between the podcast recording and the scripted scenes felt too jumpy and too obvious, and it felt rather forced. However, like I said, by the third episode, they do really hit their stride. All animated scenes do go hand in hand with the discussion, For example, on discussing the prison of oneself and rising above everything that you believe is holding you back, 
the animation is located within a jailbreak. So, did you make sense? And there definitely is a point to it, but episode 3 really started to connect the visuals with the dialogue and it worked much more seamlessly. So my suggestion would be, if you try this show, but you're not really sure, because 1 and 2 are a little overwhelming, skip to 3 and go from there and see how you feel about it. I did have some personal favourites because it is ultimately a discussion about the mind and about meditation and some of the discussions were genuinely thoughtful and insightful, if not a little wacky. These interviewees have a long history with these issues for whatever reason and they're sharing their story, a very real story that was lifted from Trussell's podcast to the screen. If you are looking for something that does discuss some deep and interesting topics, this show certainly is worth a try. The animation style is rather simple but colourful, similar to Adventure Time and it can seem hard to get used to at first but like I said, wait till episode 3 and the whole show will seem more in sync with itself. You can really begin to listen to the discussion and watch the visuals with relative ease. I genuinely took something from this show and by the end you really see its worth. It can be heartwarming and reveals the absurdity in life that leaves someone searching for heightened spirituality and enlightenment as well as reaching beyond ourselves into an elevated version of who we could be. It does sound like the kind of discussion sometimes that people may have if they were high and contemplating the meaning of life, but that doesn't lessen the worth of the discussion. The last episode, especially, really touched me. I don't want to give too much away, but it's centred around a podcast episode that Trussell had with his mother, only a few months before she passed away of cancer, She was a psychologist and spent the episode coming to terms with death and how understanding and accepting one's mortality gives you more life and happiness in the long run. (sighs) It genuinely made me cry, like I I honestly getting emotional thinking about it. But it is certainly worth a watch. I would highly recommend it, but I do understand the absurdity of the animation and it can be a bit of a shock to someone who isn't used to this type of animation style and even the humour can be a bit of a shock. But stick at it, it is a bit rude. Not just in terms of the language, but there are scenes that are definitely not appropriate for kids and young teens. So just because it's written by Ward, who gave us a family-friendly adventure time, and just because it looks like a simple animation, please do not watch this with any kids around, because I don't want to see some of those scenes, trust me. So, here we come to the end of the recommended shows that I've seen. I do have another couple of shows on here that I haven't seen, but I do want to recommend. This section will obviously be much shorter as I haven't seen them, so I don't really have any opinions on them, but I will just quickly summarise what they are and why I'm still recommending them. Again, they will be separated by what audiences they are suitable for. As I haven't seen them, I'm going to rate them solely as suitable for younger audiences or suitable for adults, because I couldn't say whether the ones that are suitable for kids are mature enough for adults, You'll have to watch it and figure it out for yourself. Uh, Or I'll watch them at some point and let you know, but I wouldn't hold your breath because it takes me forever to get around to watching something. So the first two shows that I'm recommending, they are Miraculous, Tales of Ladybug and Cat Noir, or as I just call it, Miraculous Ladybug, and Kipo and the Age of Wonder Beasts. Miraculous Ladybug is set in France, as it's a French show but I'm pretty sure you can watch it in English. To be honest, I'm not 100% sure, but I would assume so. It is on Netflix and it is counted under shows that kids can watch, 
so surely they wouldn't expect children to watch a show in subtitles because not all of them are capable of doing so. So it's probably dubbed, safe to say. But anyway, the show is about two teenagers, Marinette and Adrian, who transform into Ladybug and Cat Noir, respectively, although they don't know each other's identity, and team together as heroes to protect Paris against civilian Hawkmoth. Right. I would securely place this as suitable for younger audiences, alongside the Dragon Prince and Hilda, because I have seen some of the show on my social media through people I follow, and I have discussed this series somewhat with a friend who says they have seen the show, and it seems more for younger audiences than for adults, but that's not to say adults can't watch it and enjoy it, because I know they do, else I wouldn't have seen it online. However, it seems that the reason it's for younger audiences is for the same reason as the Dragon Prince, where the characters do act a bit more immature and probably suffer from the typical cartoon stereotypes that are often applied to this type of show, as is also seen in Carmen Sandiego. It definitely does seem a bit more cartoony, and does apply some of those stereotypes quite frequently to its characters and the episode format, and the plot is quite simple from what I've heard. It doesn't seem to hold the same complexity and nuance that a lot of other shows would. However, the reason I recommend it is because I've seen other adults watch the show and do enjoy it, and I've seen enough references to it for me to believe that some people will find the show interesting. Someone I know did say that there is a storyline at the moment that does actually hold a bit more nuance to it, and so far it's been handled quite well. So if they do manage to pull it off, maybe it will be more securely recommended as a show for adults, But until then, I'm going to leave this recommendation more for the younger audiences, as I haven't seen it, and I can't promise a lot of adults will want to watch it. I feel only a handful of people want to watch it anyway, but still it's there for you to watch, so if you have gone through everything else and are unsure about what to watch next, there's always this. That is why I recommended it, it's there. The second show for younger audiences is Kipo and the Age of Wonder Beasts. Kipo is about a young teenage girl of the same name who goes on a journey to find her father after fleeing from the underground city in which she lives. After doing so, she has to travel across a post-apocalyptic wasteland where she comes across mutant animals on the way. Now, to be honest with you, I haven't actually seen this show talked about a lot. But, I have seen some rather lengthy posts as to why people should watch it, which I suppose makes up for the lack of discussion around it. A lot of the interviews for it have been overwhelmingly positive, and it has been praised for its creativity, its watchability, and apparently it does have an appeal to all age ranges. Even so, as I haven't seen it, I would leave it as a show for younger audiences, but one that can still be enjoyed by adults until I see it for myself, and can decide more where to place it. But it does have a diverse cast and is a female-led adventure, which is always fun to see. Apparently the world itself is well established and well written and is interesting and there is a part that does unravel and makes it intriguing to watch. Apart from being diverse in gender balance and in different ethnic representation, there is also queer representation that is outright stated from one character. Just like She-Ra, it has a casualness about its representation which makes it a pleasure to watch, as it isn't something that causes issue or is posed as a shock, but it's just a facet of these characters that doesn't represent the whole of them, but is rather just one aspect that makes up their character. So as we can see, there is a lot of promise to this show, and I am actually interested in watching it. I just haven't got round to it yet. Uh, But if you're unsure or you want to try something new, 
This does seem a good show to do so for any age. It definitely has a reputation as an underrated show and it would be nice to see it get a bit more support as it's not really talked about enough despite its positive critical reception. Now, for the adult shows, I know I said I wasn't really going to recommend anime as I feel some people probably need to build up to this form of animation, but these two are both anime shows and I have very good reason to recommend them. So these two are only suitable for adults, or rather for mid to late teen viewers at the youngest, and I definitely would not watch either of these around children. The first that I'm recommending is Castlevania. I have seen it at the top of recommended lists on Netflix, and I follow a few artists on various social platforms, and it has been recommended by some of them, but this is an 18 plus show, for sure. I haven't seen it, but there's a lot of gore, strong language and nudity, Some people have even likened it to The Witcher and Game of Thrones, and and it has been said that it is an intense and dark anime. So let's get to the summary first, which I did get from Wikipedia because I have no idea what it's actually about. Count Dracula decides to summon an army of demons to terrorise and overrun the country after discovering that his wife was burnt at the stake after wrongly being accused of witchcraft. Fair enough. Uh, In order to stop Dracula, a monster hunter is hired who works alongside a magician and Dracula's half-vampire, half-human son. There are actually a host of well-known actors in this show. I did look through them on IMDb, but most of them are the type of actor you'd recognise by face rather than by name. But Richard Armitage is part of the cast, and I can see Bill Nye and Jason Isaacs are also characters on there. There is a good handful of female characters too, it's not just a majority male cast, or so it seemed going off of the listing. I mean, I know I haven't watched it, but it does seem popular enough. It hasn't been discussed a lot, but it does seem to be on recommended lists quite frequently, so there must be some foundation in that. If you're into fantasy, action and adventure, or horror, this does seem the show for you. If you don't like gore, maybe this won't be appropriate to watch because some say there's quite a bit of that in there. But don't forget, it is also animated, so maybe you'll feel better watching this and live-action gore. It's up to you to decide, and if you're not sure, you can always give it a go and see. You know, you don't lose anything by doing that. It seems to have a compelling plot and interesting enough characters and does have a majority of positive reviews. There does seem to be some negative reviews too, but overall it definitely leans heavily towards the positive and I feel fairly confident in recommending it. It's another show that I've seen around and have been meaning to watch and have yet to get around to. So yeah, if the other adult shows I recommended aren't to your taste or you don't like that kind of genre, but you do like this kind of story more, I think you should definitely give it a go. If you really enjoy it, feel free to let me know so I can motivate myself to finally get around to watching it, which, knowing me, will be many years to come from now. Right, the second and last show I'm recommending for adults is Death Note. This is also an anime, but it's been talked about so much and been referenced so much as well, I can't not recommend it. It's basically a bit of a cult classic among some animation and anime fans. I don't know whether there's a dub, as it is in Japanese originally, but I wouldn't let that perturb you because it seems popular enough that you should give it a go, whether it is dubbed or subbed. 
So the basic premise is that a student called Laiji Yagami finds a black notebook titled Death Note, which can kill anyone, as long as the user knows the name and the face of their intended target. Light discovers that the book does work and decides to use the book for good by killing high-profile criminals in Japan before stretching beyond that to international crime lords. However, the police and media obviously start to notice his trend and set out to find who is behind his killings and so it's a trap to find the person uh, who has committed these crimes. My first experience with Death Note was in high school when this guy actually had a notebook similar to the show and he did actually used to put the names of people he didn't like in there. <laughs> and I used to ask him every now and again if I was in it. And he always said no, so that was really nice of him. But anyway, since then, I have heard this show mentioned frequently enough that I know of it and certain references to it without me ever having seen the show. So it's been around. I believe it is rated at least a 15, so bear that in mind. Maybe for people who aren't used to anime, some of the premise of this show and some of the visuals may seem a bit out of your comfort zone or what you're used to, but if you like any genres that include the supernatural, any mystery or any psychological thrillers, this may be a good shout for you. It does have a very solid base of fans and does have a solid foundation as being a cult classic. I believe there has been manga and novels to carry on the story and there's also been a movie. So I believe, I don't know, I haven't really heard anything negative about it from anyone who's seen it so I think it's a solid choice for recommendation. Like I said, I haven't seen it but it seems there's enough hype in order for me to feel that I'm right in suggesting it. Again, I've been meaning to watch it for a while so when I get around to it I can probably give more thoughts about it but until then you'll have to watch it and let me know. Definitely try it out if you're willing to try something new and see how you like it. Okay, so those are the shows that I've recommended. There are quite a lot there and there's more than enough to get started on. For every show, I definitely say try the whole of the first season before deciding it's for you because I know some people have watched these shows and had their reservations on their first watch but by the end of the first season they end up enjoying it so if you start any of these and think, I'm not really sure, please stay until the end of the first season of each. And if you're still not feeling it, fair enough. But for some, it definitely gets better as time goes on. Dragon Prince does build up a bit and get more action-orientated. Shira definitely gets really strong in season 3 to 5. And Bojack Horseman certainly changes pace and tone in the later seasons. So yeah, check them out and keep going because I think you'll really start to see the worth of these shows as time goes on. There are more shows on Netflix than I've mentioned, some that I've seen and some that I haven't, and people may be wondering why they weren't added. I'm going to give a quick explanation as to why that is. So, for example, I know there's Voltron, and for a while it was quite widely watched and discussed, but it suffered from a poor ending and the hype pretty much immediately vanished. Some people who really love the show and who are still around argue that it's still worth watching, but I feel 90% of its original fanbase has moved on and is still quite disappointed by its ending. And because I haven't seen it, I don't feel comfortable recommending it. Also, I don't know whether I will ever see it personally just because of the ending. I don't really feel like investing my time into a TV show that a lot of people ended up saying was disappointing. So that is why Voltron is not on the list. 
There are other shows that are problematic or I can't remember if they are, so I haven't bothered adding them. Big Mouth, for example, is problematic. I did see the first season back when it first came out, but I haven't seen any more. And the most recent season, I did see a lot of backlash for it, so I certainly won't be watching any more anyway, nor will it be recommended. There are other shows like F is for Family or Archer, where it's been quite a few years now since I've watched them and I can't remember if they're problematic. Uh, I couldn't possibly say, so I don't want to recommend them if that's the case. I also haven't really had the urge to rewatch them, so I suppose that speaks for itself in terms of how engaging they are. Also, I know Beastars was added recently enough and there has been some talk over it, but I haven't necessarily seen anything negative or positive about it in regards to the reception it's received and I don't really know if I want to watch it personally. I mean, everyone has different tastes and they enjoy what they enjoy and obviously that is perfectly okay. I'm also not against the concept of anthropomorphic animals as I have recommended a few shows that have this concept in them. But I do feel there is a suggestion of sexual tension between the two main animals in Beastars, and seeing sexual tension between anthropomorphic characters triggers my fight and flight response. So I will not be watching this show unless someone else assures me otherwise. And that is that on that. I hope that explains some of the reasons why I haven't mentioned other shows, especially for adults, uh, on Netflix at least. You may think there's more shows than that on there, or she's seen more than that. The answer is I know, and I have, but I'm really going off of the ones that are stronger in plot, in diversity, its delivery, and for those I haven't seen, I'm going off of its reception and how much I've seen it discussed among those who frequently watch animated shows. Also, a couple of animated shows were released while recording this episode, so I haven't even got around to watching them or digesting the fact that they exist. So anyway, if you see other animated shows that maybe catch your attention more, you can watch them, obviously, but some of the adult shows on Netflix, as is the same anywhere, can be quite offensive and not usually in a way that is funny. Some of them, like Big Mouth, fall into the pit of ignorance, and plus I think it's a good thing that adults get more used to watching shows that aren't specifically for adults, because sometimes they're actually the better shows for animation but they're often overlooked because adults don't seem to think they have much to offer. Plus, don't forget, this is a two-parter, so there are actually more shows to come. I'm sure all of you are thinking, for goodness sake, please stop talking. (laughs) This is just for shows on Netflix, so again, if you think there are more animated shows out there that are worth watching, you are absolutely correct in thinking that, but they can be difficult to find. For now, this is just for those out there who have a common streaming platform such as Netflix to watch these shows as they are easily available or much, you know, they're easier to find at least. I really hope you guys enjoy watching the recommendations as much as I enjoyed them. Please let me know if you end up watching any of them, especially if you did like them. And if you see any of the shows that I haven't seen and think they were great, again, let me know as I would love to know they were worth a recommendation and it will help motivate me to watch them eventually. Uh, there's just so many shows to see and there's so little time. Just to let you know as well, as much as I said this is a two-parter, which it is, uh, I will be posting the Midsummer episode next, which is the next season in the Wheel of the Year, 
That is because Midsummer is coming up, and if I post it after the two episodes, the festival will pretty much be over by then. So it does need to be posted soon. But the second part of this will be coming after, so I'm not lying, there are two episodes. Plus it gives you a bit more time to maybe watch some of these before moving on to the next one. But yes, thank you for sitting through this incredibly long episode. And if you want to listen to the second part, I thank you even more for your patience and diligence. I do love most of these shows that I've picked and I certainly was entertained by them and learned something from them. I really hope you take something from them too. For now, all I can say is speak to you next time. In the meantime, you can find me at Hannah's Hangout Podcast on Instagram. That will be Hannah with a H. Thank you again for listening and speak to you soon.